I was reminded this week of just how foolish it is that we do this, that there is a kind of non-wisdom to what we do here when we gather together. I've had, without exaggerating, dozens of conversations about this journey that Sanctuary has been on and especially about being a sacramental community or a liturgical community. If you're somebody who I've had this conversation with, know that today is not directed at you. Um, if anything, you have just helped to water some of the, the soil of my own heart. But the more I talk about this, this historical arc of worship, the theological outcomes of the liturgy, what are we supposed to be gleaning from our time together, the more I realize just the sheer foolishness of it. That we come and we sing songs, we listen to readings and pray prayers, that we try to engage and hear what the Spirit is saying to us and doing in our midst and to the world, it is a kind of foolishness. And the more I've thought about this, the more I have felt that when we gather, when we come together in this moment, when we engage this act of worship, we never do this alone. I mean, it's true, like there are more than one of us here this morning, but even those of us as we gather together, there is more present in this moment. There are others watching what's happening in this moment that we're not aware of. And I'm not just talking about our live stream viewers today. There are actually what the text calls principalities and powers. The psalm that we read this morning reminds us, it says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. And then what does the psalmist say? Before the gods, I sing your praise. Before the gods, lowercase g, I sing your praise. When we gather, when we come together to worship, every time we come to worship, we worship God, capital G, in full view of all the other lowercase g gods that exist in our lives. We worship God in the midst of the gods of nation. We worship God in the midst of the gods of tribe, of the gods of family, and it's before all of those other gods, some that we have inherited, some that are of our own making, and it's in their, their presence that we come and we worship Jesus. These gods, they offer things to us that aren't foolish. They offer us things that actually make a whole lot of sense things that are practical. These gods offer us things like power. They offer us things like security. They offer us things like a sense of belonging. But they offer these things, they offer power and security and belonging in exchange for our blood, in exchange for our time, our loyalty. And traditionally, the church has talked about these gods with the language of principalities and powers. 
In Colossians 1, Paul talks at length about exactly what he means by rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, kings and rulers and gods. And then in Colossians 1, starting in 15, Paul makes this statement not about the principalities and the powers, but about Jesus, about Christ. And he says that for in him, in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created, the visible and the invisible. What's Paul suggesting? That even the powers and the principalities in some way were made through and for Christ. In the churches that I grew up in, probably the churches that you're familiar with, principalities and powers were almost exclusively referred to as the demons, right? The spirits and those things that needed to be exercised out of our lives or outside of our communities. But that's almost certainly not what Paul means here. Here, what Paul is suggesting is that whatever we mean by principalities and powers, it's something that was created through Christ for Christ. All things were created through him and for him. And something that we see in Ephesians that's so fascinating is that somehow our worship, what we do as a community, is for their sake, for the sake of the principalities and the powers that exist in our lives. So, what does Paul mean? What are we talking about? Clearly, Paul is not just talking about angels, not just talking about demons. What Paul means by principalities and powers are all of the structures that give our lives meaning. All those things that give a purpose to our lives. These aren't just pitchfork-carrying devils. Principalities and powers are in some ways visible to us and in some ways invisible to us. And then they structure our lives and give meaning to who we are, to what we do, how we live our lives. And why this matters for us as Christians is because what we do in worship and what Christ has done for us on the cross is not just about us, which is the story that we've most often told ourselves. In some ways, our worship and what Christ has done for us is about all the other gods in our lives and what Christ has done for them and to them. Let's look at this. If you brought your Bible, <laughs> some of you did, I know. Most of you carry it around in your pocket every day and it lights up when you tap on it. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6 as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Remember that line, according to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God 
who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them. This is the story that we rarely tell. If the story that we most often tell is that Jesus died on the cross to save us from the possibility of going to hell, then the story that we rarely tell is this one, that what God was doing in Christ wasn't just about you and me, about delivering human beings from the possibility of hell, but he was doing something to and for these principalities, these gods in whose presence we live and worship. And what Jesus is doing on the cross is not only delivering us from sin, but from whatever power these principalities have over us. And then Paul shifts just a little later. He says, so don't let anyone condemn you in matters of food, what you eat, what you drink, or observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. What is he doing here? Paul just said that Christ disarmed and defeated, overthrown the powers and principalities that seek to rule our lives. And he jumps to saying, so don't let anyone judge you based on what you eat based on what you drink, based on the festivals that you celebrate or how you live your life on the Sabbath. What is he doing? He's saying the principalities and powers that seek to rule our lives, they do so by using that phrase I told you to remember. They do so by using human tradition in order to dominate us, to give our lives supposed meaning to tell us stories that may be true, but they're not the most true. Notice, Paul doesn't list things like cussing and going to rated R movies and getting tattoos. Paul lists what you eat and what you drink and what you celebrate, what you believe is holy, your festivals, those things that seem to give our lives purpose. That is what these gods use. And Paul says that Christ has put all of those powers to rest. So why do you still submit to their regulations? Why do you still let them tell you how to live your life? The truth is we don't see the ways that our lives are influenced by the gods of the worlds that we live in. These gods, these principalities and powers, they're invisible, but in more ways than one. I mean, literally, we can't see them. But also, we don't even see the ways in which they are influencing us or even feel their influence at times. Their influence is so natural that we take it as a given, the way things are. We take, we take it all as common sense. And common sense is what ultimately always conflicts with the gospel because common sense is given to us by the principalities and powers. So if our worship feels foolish, if what we do here in this space feels odd, it's because we are more formed by the common sense of the principalities and powers 
the kings and the rulers, the gods of our worlds, then we are formed by the kingdom. Your common sense, my common sense is raised and nurtured by the worlds in which we are trained how to be human. I've said this more than once, so I should explain what I mean. When we talk about our worlds that we live in, I'm suggesting that we all live in somehow segmented worlds, right? That we all have multiple worlds that we are a part of. So I am, I'm a dad, and I'm also a husband, and I'm also a priest, and I'm also an Oklahoman, and I'm also an American, that there are all of these worlds that I exist in. And all of these worlds has its own God, has its own kind of common sense, has its own wisdom, its markers of success and failure, of beauty and ugliness. And some of these gods are more unfaithful than others. So they're easier to recognize, right? If there was one culture of like, cannibals that also sacrificed its children. That's clearly more unfaithful than another culture that doesn't do those things. The problem is that every principality, every power, whether it's close to good or close to evil, all of them in some way is at odds with the gospel because they're trying to claim for themselves what God has claimed in Christ. And this is the problem for us. This is the catch, is that the more the world we inhabit looks like the kingdom, the greater the temptation to receive its wisdom over and against the wisdom of the kingdom. The more the world we inhabit looks like the kingdom, the more we're tempted to confuse it with the kingdom itself. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees that the publicans and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom before you because at least they know that their world isn't the kingdom. But you think your world is the kingdom and that's why you're going to waste your time defending it. But Jesus needs no defending the kingdom needs no apologetic, and that's why we kill the prophets who come to us because we think that the world as we know it is what God wants for everybody, which only leads to engaging over and again the culture wars of our day. This is the story that we see in our Old Testament text for today in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Some of you know this story. That for about 300 years after the time of Joshua, after the Exodus, and then the wandering in the desert, the Hebrew people had been governed by this kind of amorphous leadership. These judges that functioned as a kind of ad hoc group of mediators. And they were doing more guiding of the nation than they were leading the nation. They weren't ruling it. There was no centralized government, no conglomerated power. It was a kind of communal effort for the people of God. And plus there were the priests and there was Samuel the prophet who was trying to listen to God and help to guide the community. And the people hate it. At least the loud ones do. And so they beg Samuel the prophet, find us a king 
They want a ruler to bring glory and prosperity and victory to them. They want to be like all of the other respectable kingdoms of the world. And so God says to Samuel, well, you might as well listen to them because they aren't going to let me lead them. And so Samuel warns them in no uncertain terms what this will lead to. That this way leads to empire, it leads to war, it leads to toil, to loss, to suffering, to oppression and slavery. But still they say, yes, this is what we want. And so Samuel resigned, he just agrees, renew the kingship. And so Saul is made king. But of course, Samuel is right. And the principalities and the powers, they seduced the people of Israel into common sense, into ordering their lives in the very same way that all the other kingdoms of the world had ordered their lives. It seduced them then, and it seduces us today. Because this is what principalities and powers want. It's survival at all costs, at any cost. And these gods can only ever give you meaning, can only ever give you purpose over and against someone else. There has to be an enemy. There has to be someone else who isn't as fully human as those of us on the inside are. So the Israelites, they are okay with their sons being appointed to run before the king and before his chariots to sacrifice themselves for the king. They're okay with doing the backbreaking work of plowing the king's fields, reaping his harvest for him with taking our daughters and making them the king's cooks and bakers, taking the best of our fields and giving them away to the king's friends. We're okay with it because it draws clean cut lines of who is in and who is out. And at least I know where I stand over and against you. Principalities and powers need insiders and outsiders. And this is what Jesus topples. We see it in our gospel text that the crowds come to Jesus saying, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And notice what happens. The text actually says that Jesus' mother and his brothers came standing outside and they sent to him and called him. But a crowd was sitting nearby and they're the ones who say to Jesus, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside. Did you catch it? The only people who come are Jesus' mother and his brothers. And the crowd says, your mother and your brothers and your sisters. As soon as the crowd saw themselves being associated with the right people, they wanna be associated with them too. As soon as the mother and the brothers arrive, suddenly, well, we are all. It's your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are asking for you. And Jesus says to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Who? Who are they but those who do the will of God? Jesus is the one who speaks a better word to the gods of family, a better word to the gods of nation and tribe, disarming the rulers and authorities in our lives that seek 
to shape us and give us meaning. And we see this again and again and again in the life of Jesus. That Jesus is the one who touches the leper. He's the one who lets the woman wash his feet. He is the one who touches the dead. He's the one who speaks to Gentiles. And the reason Jesus is crucified is that people who were on the inside of their world wouldn't allow Jesus to change the way that the principalities work. And to be sure, in all of the little worlds that we inhabit, each with their own little gods, the gospel is going to come to you. The gospel is going to come to you. And in every one of those worlds, there's going to be conflict. Because we have to choose, are we going to follow the wisdom of God or the wisdom of those gods? the wisdom of the little worlds that we've created for ourselves or the world that God imagines for us, the world that God dreams for us. In our worship, our witness to the principalities and powers, it begins by saying, Jesus is Lord and none of you. Because God is faithful to his people, not to the principalities and powers. God is faithful to his people, not the kings and the rulers. God is faithful to his people, not the gods that we make for ourselves. And too often we confuse our identity with the rotting systems that we've created. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. What does that look like? I'm gonna get myself in trouble but give me some grace here. It means that God blesses Americans, not America. It means that when scripture talks about nations, it's not talking about governments. It's not talking about states. The nations in the scriptures are the people. And this is true of every state, of every nation, of every system and every way in which we have organized ourselves that we think gives our life meaning, be it Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Communist or Capitalist or Socialist, whatever name you want to give it, it is an alternative wisdom to the wisdom of the gospel. This is universally true. God blesses Canadians, not just Canada. God blesses Mexicans, not just Mexico. I don't know what you call people who live in Greenland, but God does, blesses those people, not Greenland. Thank you. Please hear me. I can be a proud Oklahoman. I'm actually a Hoosier, but I live in Oklahoma. I can be proud to be an American, and I am a citizen a priest, a husband, a father, but that's not where my identity is rooted. My only identity is that I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ in me. This is why Paul can say, I am all things to all people, so that when I'm with the Jews, I live like a Jew. When I'm with the Gentiles, I live like a Gentile. But I'm not free from the law, he says. I am under the law of Christ. This is why, that the principalities and powers, they prioritize integrity. 
And that sounds like good news, but the integrity that they prioritize is that they want you to be true to the identity that they've given to you. Remember, the principalities and powers, they have taught us how to be human. So Jews, be Jews with the Jews and leave the Gentiles alone. Gentiles, be Gentiles with the Gentiles and leave the Jews alone. And Jesus says all of these categorizations, they don't give you meaning. Your identity and your meaning are in me, and I am Lord of Jew and Gentile alike. Our worship reminds us that we are defined by the one who meets us at this table. And it doesn't come to us naturally. It's why it feels awkward and uncomfortable and sometimes boring. We have to look at each other now. And one of the great problems of Protestant spirituality is that we have tried to build our churches to appeal to people's natures. We've tried to be relevant. We've tried to make this feel easy. Stanley Hauerwas, who has his own unique ability to get himself in trouble, he says Protestant churches in America are dying of their own success. What's he saying? He means that we have drawn people to a gospel that has been shaped to their natures as we already are, affirming their own opinions. Because again, it's so easy for us to think that the kingdoms we live in, so long as it has felt good to us, is what God imagines for all people. And so we reinforce our common sense that's been prescribed to us by the gods of the worlds in which we live, rather than the mind of Christ. There is a way of worshiping that makes sense. It feels good. It does something for us. But when we start to move toward worship that is true and that is spirit-led, it doesn't make the same kind of sense anymore because we're learning the language of another world. Think about some of you are Spanish-speaking people. And if you know anybody who's actually gone and lived in Spain to go and learn the language. It's not just about immersing yourself in the language. Suddenly the culture is different. Suddenly there are these things in the middle of the day called siestas. And suddenly when you wanna be most productive, they're all laying down. They're all taking naps. Your priorities, your commitments, your convictions have to shift. This is what we experience when we come together as the body of Christ. That suddenly we show up and we wanna work and God is saying, no, it's siesta time. That kind of worship doesn't make the same kind of sense because we are becoming aliens to the world that we have known. This is why litur liturgy matters. <laughs> why praying the prayers that the saints have prayed is one of the ways we start to learn the wisdom of the kingdom. Worshiping is learning to mean what is against your human nature to mean. It's learning to pray the Psalms, not because I mean them, but because I want someday to mean them. It's learning to pray these prayers until I can pray them like Jesus prayed them. Stand up so you think I'm done. <laughs> Two practices in the liturgy that were connected early on in the church's mind, early in our history, these two practices are bringing our offerings of our tithes and the receiving of the Eucharist. Each week we learn to come and we lay down what the world tells us matters. 
so that we can come with open hands to receive what Jesus tells us matters. Christian worship is about coming and doing things that by every standard of the world looks like foolishness. It's the wisdom of God training us to see the mystery of God's divine life. One last story. I saw this interview recently of a man named Etsuro Sotu. He was a Buddhist sculptor who traveled to Spain and he became captivated by Gaudi's Sagrida Familia in Barcelona. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And he was so inspired by this project, this massive cathedral that's taken decades and decades to construct. He was so inspired by it that he joined this project. Again, he's Buddhist. And he's sculpting and working and making this cathedral come to life. And he said in this interview, he said, I know all the words of Gaudi, the architect. I know all of his works, all of his models, but I can't take another step, he says. He said, so I decided not to look to Gaudi. So where do I look? He says, I look instead in the way that Gaudi looked. And this is his conversion story from being a Buddhist to becoming a Catholic. He said, I'm here not to catch Gaudi's vision, not to catch his same idea, but to have the same vision that Gaudi had. And so I have to pray the same prayers. I have to read the same texts. I have to see the world from a place where the principalities and powers seem foolish and the kingdom is common sense. He says, why do we build the Sagrada Familia? Why do we build it? We don't seek beauty in the vanity of man, he says. No, the Sagrada Familia is a tool for building us. Worship is a tool that honors God. Our worship is defined by that thing we do that, that honors God. But it also builds us and shapes us, and it restructures all of the powers and principalities and the lowercase g gods that fight for our loyalty. We're here today. We are not alone. Amen.